All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning. It'll be on the screen in just a bit. But as you're turning there, how many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis' work, The Screwtape Letters? Anybody know that? Okay, several. Okay, great. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with that particular work of C.S. Lewis, this is a, uh, a story written uh, about a couple characters in the demonic world. It's written from a Christian perspective by C.S. Lewis about demons and how they interact and what they think and how insidious and, and, and even deceitful their, the whole world in which they live is and how sometimes we as Christians are blinded to it. He wrote this work to expose the demonic to believers so we would understand and recognize the enemy's activity in our world. <clears throat> he, he writes about one called Screwtape and another called Wormwood. Ralph Martin took off on the Screwtape Letters and, and did a follow-up to that. And, and in that particular work, it says, he writes, As Screwtape once quoted to Wormwood, their father, that is the devil's couplet, old error in new dress is ever error nonetheless. The, the, the enemy, Satan himself, has been repackaging lies from the very beginning. The author of Ecclesiastes would say there's nothing new under the sun. There's no experience new under the sun, Solomon would learn, but there's no lie new under the sun. Old error in new dress is error nonetheless. This morning we're going to see that the world in which we live is very similar to the world of Greek mythology into which Paul spoke as he stood in the ancient city of Athens about 2,000 years ago. We continue this morning in our study of the book of Acts. We've been looking at this uh, travel diary, this travel journey of of Luke's uh, under the heading of Jesus' gospel gathering for gospel going. The book is clearly about the early church. That's Jesus' gospel gathering. But it's clearly about the early church sent on mission for God. That's the part about for gospel going. So Jesus' gospel gathering for gospel going. That's a real good summary of who you are together with other believers in the body of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's a good way to think about yourself. You're, a, you're, 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 you're part of the Jesus and then the gospel gathering. You're owned by Christ gathered around the gospel with others who are owned by Christ, and you're gathered around the gospel to go with the gospel. It's never just one or the other, is it? It's always both. And today as we come to Acts chapter 17, verse 16, we find Paul where we left him last week in Athens. You'll remember last week, we, uh, the first part of Acts 17, uh, again, Paul started his, this second missionary, missionary journey in Antioch of Syria. He made his way throughout um, uh, Asia Minor, Galatia there, all the way over to Troas, took a boat as he answered the Macedonian call, a vision he had to go to uh, Macedonia, went over to Philippi. From there, he went to Thessalonica and Berea. Things got bad in Berea. They chased him out of town, and the brothers sent Paul on down south to Athens. Can everybody see that down here on the the, the peninsula of, of where it says Achaia and Corinth. That's Athens uh, right there. So that's where Paul ends up. He's by himself at this point. 
Timothy and Silas are still back in Berea. Uh, they've been sent for to come on down. But we find Paul alone in the city of Athens. And I want to talk to you this morning, as we watch Paul, I want to talk to you about confronting our culture with Christ. Here's the take-home reality. We can and we must effectively share Jesus at every level of our society. That's what we're going to see Paul do in the great city of Athens. Confronting our culture with Christ, we can and we must effectively share Jesus at every level of society. The, the outline for today's message, I'm borrowing it directly from John Stott's commentary on the book of Acts. And so there's my credit given. And what I want you to see this morning, as, as Paul comes into this great metropolis of, of Athens, Athens was, was probably only rivaled by Rome herself at this point in history. Athens had been at her peak a, a couple hundred years before Paul was there. But Paul grew up hearing uh, all the stories about the culture and the, the literature and the arts and, and, and just, the, 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 just the amazing trade and, 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 and sophistication of Athens. And finally, this great apostle is in this great city. And he's not there to sightsee. The great apostle's fixing to take on the great Athens with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as he comes into this city, Luke tells us four parts to Paul's reaction. How does Paul react when he finally sees the great city of Athens? Luke tells us four things Four ways that he reacted. First of all, he tells us what Paul saw. Then he tells us what Paul felt. He tells us what Paul did. And finally, he tells us what Paul said. And this morning, I want you to understand that our experience, our lives should parallel these reactions of Paul. The worlds we live in are not that different. How should we, what should we see in our world? And then how should we feel based on what we see? And based on what we see and how it makes us feel, what should we do and say? Every day, consistently, at every level of our society. That's what I want us to see this morning. And what I want you to learn is that we can and we must effectively share Jesus at every level of society. Well, what, consider with me first of all, what Paul saw. Verse 16 says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Skipping down a little bit to the end of that verse, he saw that the city was full of idols. Literally, this word, it's an, it's, it's a, it's a, it's an odd Greek construction. It's not used very often. Literally, it means it was swamped with idols. It was covered over with idols. There was a saying about Athens it was said it's easier to find a God in Athens than a man. That's how pervasive idolatry was in the city of Athens. I couldn't find a good picture to show you, but here and there you'll find, if you look on the internet or look in history books, you'll find uh, artist 
attempts to recreate what the city would have looked like in, in, in this day. And it was unbelievable. First of all, most of these ruins that you see, this is the aerial shot of, of the city. Most of these ruins, most everything you see that looks like it was a building was a temple or some sort of pagan uh, place, shrine of worship. Um, uh, let's see, up at the big one in the middle, that's the, that whole raised area is called the Acropolis. And, and on the Acropolis... There was a number of different temples to various gods, one to Athena, one to Poseidon, uh, the, the center building there, the Parthenon. Uh, down in the lower left corner is the, the theater of Dionysius, uh, where they would have um, all different kinds of uh, drama and, and, and that kind of stuff going on. In a few minutes, we're going to be talking about Mars Hill, and just while we're here, I'll show you where this would be. If you could imagine off to the left side of the screen, kind of straight down that ridge, uh, just, just out of view of, of the screen there will be Mars Hill or the Areopagus where we'll be kind of camping out today. Uh, and so imagine when we get to that point, Paul would have been in the shadow of the Acropolis, in the shadow of the, the Parthenon, some of the recreations of, of this mount. Uh, off to the left of the Parthenon there had uh, a figure of Athena that was twice the height of the Parthenon. Uh, it was just idols everywhere. So to, to be, for Paul to, or for Luke to write that Paul saw that the city was full of idols was a, really an understatement. There weren't words strong enough to explain the rampant idolatry everywhere. There was uh, a, a temple to Artemis. Ar- Artemis was the goddess of prosperity or money. There was the goddess of Athena, the goddess Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom and politics. Anything starting to sound familiar yet? You may not have known this, but there was the god Nike. Yes, Nike, just like you're thinking, the shoes on some of your feet this morning, Nike, the goddess of athletic and military victory, worshipped here in this city. Aphrodite, the goddess of sexuality, beauty, and fertility. I mean, they had a god for everything. Apollyon, Zeus, the, the greatest of the gods, Poseidon, the god of the sea. All these had temple shrines. Can you believe this? There was even a god in Athens named Cloacina. Anybody have any idea what Cloacina was the god of. She was the goddess of the sewer system in Athens. I'm not sure what you prayed to her about. Smoother bowel movements? I don't know. You know, I may be tempted to think, what a crazy society. What a primitive society that would erect actual stone temples and statues of, of mythical gods and worship them. Really? In America today, we are full of idols, are we not? And I, as I'm pointed out, as I go through these that actually had names, we worship many of the things they represent. Maybe not the sewer system. We worship money. We worship wisdom and political platforms and power, military power, athletic prowess. Man, that one's like almost paramount in our families today. Beauty and all forms of sexual expression. You know the only difference 
We don't have statues for the gods that we worship, and I'm not sure which is worse. To assign a god to each of these things, to have a statue built in the honor of what it is we worship, and basically get it out there, we worship money. We worship political power. And we've got a statue to prove it. I'm not sure if that's worse, the world of Athens, or to simply worship these impersonal realities, which are all actually gifts of the one true God that we've perverted and idolized and worshipped without giving any deity the glory. We have, as Romans 1 says, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped uh, worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. This is what Paul saw, a city full of idols. Can you see in our world what Paul saw in Athens? It's there. It's not in statue form. Oh, there may be temples. Go to any major city and look at the biggest buildings in those cities, and it'll be a temple to Nike. You with me? It'll be a temple to Artemis. There'll be big sports arenas and big banks, right? Y'all tracking? You want to see a, a nation's idols? Look at its largest buildings. And yet we can and we must effectively share Jesus at every level of our society. But if we're going to do that, we must see what Paul saw. Well, if we can see what Paul saw, then maybe we'll begin to feel, secondly this morning, what Paul felt. Paul saw a city full of idols. Verse 16 tells us also what he felt when he saw the idols. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Verse is real clear. What he saw caused the way he felt. The city full of idolatry, swamped, covered over with, with idols, provoked him inside. He was provoked. His spirit was provoked within him. John Stott says, Paul was provoked by idolatry. What does that mean? What does it mean to be provoked by idolatry? It means, this word is, is, is a strong one. It means to be provoked to anger, to grief, to indignation, just as God himself. And for the same reason, namely for the honor and glory of his name. We could go through the Old Testament and look at passage after passage when the nation of Israel would worship idols and what did it do to the heart of God? It provoked his heart. He was angered by their worship of idols. He was he was he was grieved by their worship of, of idols. This is the same word that's, that's translated back in the Old Testament, in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, Septuagint. It's translated to talk about God's jealousy for the glory of his own name and his jealousy for the hearts of his people. How does God respond to idolatry? He's indignant with these false objects of worship. 
When was the last time you felt angry over how the name of Jesus Christ is dishonored? Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I want to be crystal clear. I'm not asking when the last time was you heard something you didn't agree with politically. Are we, are we communicating? It's not the same thing. What I'm asking is when's the last time you got angry, not about a differing political perspective, but about Christ's name being dishonored in your world. Can you remember the last time your heart was grieved over the lack of honor for your Savior, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords? Does anything in our experience in the world in which we live provoke indignation in our hearts because our holy father is maligned, ignored, eclipsed by the idols of our culture and so often even in the household of God. You see, if we see what Paul saw, then we should feel like Paul felt. Is this America any less idolatrous than ancient Athens? I think not. And perhaps more subtly and pervasively so. And if that's true, then folks, we ought to have a spirit that is grieved, that is angry at the defaming of Christ, that grows indignant with the world around, that, that belittles the truth of the Word of God and the holiness of our Savior. J.D. Griff says it this way, if you're not provoked by the idolatry, by the idolatry, by the sensuality, very simply, you are worldly. It doesn't bother you because you've drunk the Kool-Aid of the world. But if you're one of the ones that just sees that, that gets angry and says to hell with the world, then you are out of touch with the gospel. We can go to either extreme, can't we? Worldliness, where we just, I mean, we don't see a problem. We just kind of mix in. Or where we just say, I'm so angry at the world, let them go to hell. They're our enemies. But you see, Paul was provoked by the idolatry and jealousy for Jesus' glory, but he didn't run away from the people of Athens. Nor did he rail against all of their sin when he had the opportunity to engage them. He didn't either. He didn't run, and he didn't lash out. Paul ran to them, though, with compassion and with the gospel. Is that how we're engaging our culture? Is that how we're confronting our culture? You see, we can and we must effectively share Jesus at every level of society. And what that, does, what that means is not withdrawing into and just accepting the world around us, but it means also not lashing out and railing against, just being against everything in the world. It rather means running to the world with the compassion of Jesus Christ and the good news of his grace. You see, only when we see like Paul saw, and feel like Paul felt, will we thirdly do what Paul did? 
What did Paul do? Well, let me just summarize the next several verses for you. He witnessed everywhere. (laughs) He was provoked in his spirit. Some of us are provoked in spirit, aren't we? Our hearts grieve. We we grow angry. We are indignant with, with the evil we see around us. But then what do we do? Paul ran into Athens and just started talking about Jesus. You know what the cure for all the evil of the world is? Is it beating them over the head with a Bible and telling them how wrong they are? Is it ignoring them and hoping that they'll just get over it and get better? It's telling them about the only cure for sin, and that is Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised from the dead. Jesus witnessed everywhere. Notice here in verse 17, he witnessed to the Jews first, so he reasoned. This is his response to the, to the grief of his heart, to what he had seen and felt. Here's what he did. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. That was his practice, wasn't it? We've seen it all the way through the book of Acts. He always started with, as was his custom, and as he would write later in Romans and other places, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. To the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And so he reasoned in the synagogues with Jews. But then notice, and in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there. It wasn't just a Sabbath mission he was on. Uh, just kind of, you know, I think Paul and, or Timothy and Silas, they're not going to be here for a few days. I've got a couple of weeks here probably before they get here. So, you know, I think, I think, I think Sunday through Friday, I'm just going to kind of sightsee. I mean, I'm in Athens after all. Well, I mean, what would you do? I mean, you don't have any accountability. Your boys are in Berea. You're just there. Beautiful city. Every day, he could only go to the synagogue. They only got gathered at the synagogue on the Sabbath, Saturday. But Monday through Sunday, Sunday through Friday, he's in the marketplace. He's where the people were. We're not to think about this as him going to the Walmart and like witnessing in the aisles. That's not really the picture. The, the, the marketplace of Athens was called the Agora. This was, it, was, it was an open-air market. This is where all sorts of interactions happened, but it was also where people just kind of hung out. It, it would be kind of like the town square way, way, way back. People just went to see folks at the square. Are you with me? So Paul was there witnessing about Jesus. Verse 18 says not only was, was he in the synagogues, in the marketplace, he was in the educational centers. <clears throat> Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, the smart folks, also conversed with him. Just real quick, Epicureans were basically hedonists, pleasure seekers, Because their perspective on the gods was that the gods didn't really care about this world. They were kind of just interested in the stuff that was otherworldly. They didn't really care what you did, and so you just did whatever you wanted. You just sought pleasure in everything here below. Those are the Epicureans. The Stoics, these were pantheists who believed the gods were in everything, sort of like Hindus of today, maybe New Age folks in our area. Their ultimate state, like their goal was a stone-like self, 
full of self-control where, where pleasure didn't seduce and, and pain didn't bother. You just move through life unmoved by all of these externals. Remember, Athens was also the home to Socrates and his student Plato, or his, excuse me, his student Aristotle. And in fact, the split between Socrates and Aristotle later on is probably the root for this vast diversity of thought between the Epicureans and the Stoics. Paul witnessed in the intellectual centers. The text goes on and speaks of this interaction with these philosophers. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? What does this babbler wish to say? The word translated babbler there, (coughs) it it speaks of of what was known as a a gutter swallow, a little bird. It, it was used not very nicely to describe somebody as being pretty dumb. Because what a gutter swallow would do was ease along the street gutters and pick up seeds and whatever remains of food they could. And the idea in the, in the world of, of academia and, 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 and the intellectual world of Athens was this. This guy doesn't have an original thought in his brain. He's picked up somebody else's seed and he's chewing on it. And here in a minute, he'll spit it out. He's just a babbler. What's this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinity. So by this point, I mean, he's, he's in to the gospel. It's not recorded here what he said. But he's got it going on because, I mean, he's, they're already stirred up about what he's talking about. He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and in the Greek language, the word for resurrection could be understood as a female's name, Anastasis. And so some of the hearers were hearing Iesu, Jesus, and Anastasis. And they, they thought, man, he's talking about two different, two, two new gods. He's bringing two new guys and gals into our pantheon because he was preaching Jesus And the resurrection, again, didn't take him long to get there, did it? Verse 19, and they took took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They loved new ideas, new philosophies, new religions, anything just to entertain them and help them think differently. This was the, the world of ease and comfort and, 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 and just, just uh, abundance and, and indulgence that they lived in. Again, anything sound familiar to you? Now, the Areopagus, I already showed you where it was at. A couple pictures real quick. This is actually the Areopagus here, this, this stone place. Flip to the next one, Doug. Let me see if it... Yeah. So now, if you were at the Areopagus, this is looking up to the Acropolis, and you see up at the top the, the Parthenon there. So <clears throat> this flat spot was about where Paul was taken to. The Areopagus, though, you need to understand it was two things. It was a place, that place, but it was more, more, more um, appropriately and more specifically a council of men. 
This 30-man council served as a court of sorts. One of their main uh, main uh, um, responsibilities was to protect the gods from blasphemy. I, that just makes me chuckle. To protect the gods from blasphemy. Number one, it's a full-time job if you live in Athens because there's a bunch of them you've got to take care of. But what kind of God needs protecting by you from blasphemy? If this court was convened, in a sense, to put Paul on trial. Let's take you up to the Areopagus, Paul. We want to hear more about this. We want to clarify what you're saying. We want to make sure you're not blaspheming some of our gods. And, and only those 30 guys are smart enough to know everything about all of them. And so let's, let's go up there and let you tell them. You see, we will do what Paul did if we see and feel what Paul saw and felt. A city full of idols that provoked his spirit to speak the gospel. We can and we must effectively share Jesus at every level of society. If we see in our world what Paul saw, then we'll feel what he felt, we'll do what he did, we'll understand that our mission is to witness everywhere. Why are you where you are on any given day? Let me just clarify it for you. There may be another, a hundred other reasons on, in, in your mind, but you're there to witness for Jesus, no matter where you are, what you're doing. And then once we've get, got all that straight, we see what he saw, we feel what he felt, we're ready to do what he did, then we'll be careful to say what Paul said. Knowing that these philosophers don't accept the authority of God's Word, Paul doesn't start with the Word of God. How many times have we read already in the book of Acts when he'd go in the synagogues? It says he reasoned, in fact, chapter 17, verse 2, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Uh, with the Jews who had the Word of God and accepted its authority, he reasoned based on the Word of God. But with these Greek philosophers, he didn't start there. He didn't appeal to the authority of the Bible. He didn't say, listen, here's what you need to understand. The Bible says, and therefore you need to take that for what it is. No, he didn't do that. He started with their questions. It's a great approach for us today, by the way, with those who have no background with the Word of God. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, now remember, imagine, 30 men at least in this council up on this flat place we saw a while ago. No doubt there were other crowds that had come to, to hear this guy because he'd been talking down in the city. There he stands in the midst of them and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul said, let me start by saying, I see you're religious. You're searching for truth. You want to know what this world's all about and how it works and, and who's in charge ultimately. In fact, I see all these different temples and these objects and places of worship 
to Artemis, to, to Athena, to Apollyon, to, to Zeus, to Poseidon. I see all these things. But then I actually saw, and by the way, throughout the Roman Empire later on, especially in the, in the area of, of Greece, uh, but even over in Rome herself, they have actually found altars with that inscription. Not one found here in Athens, but it was apparently there, right? I've also seen that altar that says to an unknown God. And here's the thing. I'm here today to tell you about what you worship. The thing that you don't know that you worship, I'm going to proclaim it to you in just a second. Get the picture. This was their, as J.D. Greer says, their just-in-case God. (laughs) They had hundreds, maybe thousands, but they they had one more. (laughs) Just in case. Just in case somebody had been left out and somebody up there, out there, got mad. These polytheistic philosophers were honest enough with themselves to say that their best and their very voluminous attempts at worship and meaning in life hadn't really satisfied them. In fact, they weren't sure they'd found out all there was to know about the divine and deity in general. You know, a great question to ask folks who don't know Jesus is, how's your philosophy working for you? How's your your lack of religion, your anti-religious perspective, how's it working for you? How's your agnosticism panning out in life for you? It's a great place to start. Are you fulfilled? Do you find yourself satisfied and at peace. By the way, chances are that there's a hole somewhere in their heart that's showing itself in their lives and in their conversation in a lack of fulfillment, satisfaction, and peace. And when you ask that question, you already know the answer because you can see their lack of satisfaction or fulfillment or peace. Now, the text here about the unknown God, just to clarify, this is not saying that the Athenians, Paul's not saying that the Athenians really believed in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, but just didn't know it, and he was fixing to tell them that that's who you've been worshiping. Paul is simply using this altar to their just-in-case God as a launching pad for the proclamation of a God unlike any of the gods they've ever thought about or conceived or made up or fashioned after the creation. And he starts at the beginning. Notice what he says. Got to see like Paul saw, feel like he felt, do what he did and say what he said. So I'm fixing to give you the points that he said, the things to talk about when you're talking to lost people who don't have an affiliation with the Scriptures, don't have a background in church or the Bible. He starts at the beginning, God's the creator. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. I'm not talking about any of your gods, Athens. I'm talking to you about the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth, logical, is it not? If he made everything, this next statement, he does not live in temples made by man. If God made it all, he's not limited to a little building, no matter how massive it may be, the Acropolis, the the Parthenon, whatever. He's bigger than the planet Earth. I'm 
talking to you about the creator God. Secondly, I'm talking, about you, uh, talking to you about God who's the sustainer. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. <laughs> Y'all got it all backwards, Athens. You see, they would, every morning they would go and they would take the God's breakfast to the temples. I'm serious. They would put food in the altars. They would bathe the stone statues because the gods couldn't take their own bath. And Paul comes in and says, look, the God I'm talking to you about, you don't need to feed him. You don't need to wash him. He's the God that made everything and he sustains you. He gives you breath. Since he sustains our very life, God doesn't need for us to leave him breakfast or bathe that little figurine of a statue supposed to be him in the temple. He is God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. Thirdly, he's the ruler. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. God's the ruler. Not only did he make all things, he made all peoples. And he rules over the history of this planet. He put all the different peoples right where they belonged in his plan and in his purposes. And that's where they live their lives and do their thing and die. And the idea is that people would realize this sovereign God as ruler of all things and seek him and feel their way toward him and find him. He's not far. One of our songs, good old hymn, says he's as close as the mention of his name. As one of the poets, he quotes here, in him we live and move and have our being. Paul here quotes from a song written actually in 600 B.C. about Zeus called The Phenomena, written by Epimenides about Zeus. And Paul is here essentially saying with this quote, You're asking the right question. How is it that we exist and who's responsible for our existence? But then he's saying the answer is not what you've been saying and believing. The answer? It's the one true God who rules all things, who made all things. It's not Zeus. It's not a council of deities. It's the one true and living God, the God and Father, I believe Paul went on to say of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fourthly, he talks about God who is the Father. This is another way of referring to God as creator of all people and humanity. This is not the universal fatherhood of God, whereby false teachers today say, look, here's the deal, everybody's the children of God. Just because you're human, therefore God created you, therefore you're saved, you you don't have to worry about sin, you've got salvation, you'll be with God forever. That's not what this is talking about here. The text in verse 28 goes on, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul's here quoting uh, from three, about 330 B.C., a, a poet named Aratus. He was Paul's well-read. He's well-versed in, in the way his world tried to answer life's most important questions. Where did we come from and why are we here? Who's responsible for all of this? And he used that knowledge of their culture to jump off from where they were. This place of acknowledging that, that clearly some God made us. It's too obvious to say otherwise. But he uses that knowledge of this poet Aratus to jump off into the gospel and talk about the fact that God is Father. We are indeed his offspring. Finally, he wraps it up in verse 30 and 31 with the truth that God is the judge. The times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now, he commands all people everywhere, even right here in Athens, he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him, that is that man, who will be the judge of all things, by raising him from the dead. Now again, I believe we just got the outline of the sermon here. Paul's talking about Jesus very clearly and understand this is just the outline. The text has already told us that he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. He's gone back and explained the life of Jesus in, 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 in Israel there. He's talked about what he did in Jerusalem through his death on the cross. He's talked about the fact that he rose from the dead after three days, appeared to over 500 witnesses post-resurrection, and now he's telling the Athenians, see, the deal is, your ignorance, all this ignorance that surrounds me and your city, all the religious ignorance and all this, this pantheon of gods, he let it go in the past, but no more. He set a day and he set a man who will judge your world, Athens. And he's assured us of this. He's made it clear that Jesus is to be the judge because he raised him from the dead. All these gods you worship, they're stone figures. They're, 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 they're your best conception of what God may be. Jesus is the one true and living God. Become man. Living a perfect life in our place. Going to the cross as our substitutionary sacrifice. Being, being, having there all of God's wrath toward my sin and yours poured out on him. Dying under that curse that we deserved. Buried three days later, rising in victory from the dead. He's the only living God. He's the only living Savior. John Stott says of this little sermonette of Paul's at the Areopagus, he took in the whole of nature and of history. What is it Paul said? He, he, he passed the whole of time in review from the creation to the consummation. He emphasized the greatness of God, not only as the beginning and the end of all things, but as the one to whom we owe our being and to whom we must give account. He argued that human beings already know these things by nat natural or general revelation and that their ignorance and idolatry are therefore inexcusable. 
So he called on them with great solemnity before it was too late to repent. Now, all of this, all of this is the indispensable background of the gospel without which the gospel cannot effectively be preached in our world today. Many people are rejecting our gospel today because they perceive it to be false. Not not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. We assume over half of what Paul said in his sermon on, on Mars Hill. We assume they believe there's a creator God who sustains all things, who's sovereign over all things in history. And when you start talking at the basics of the gospel about Jesus. Many people are rejecting our gospel today not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. People are looking for an integrated worldview which makes sense of all their experience. And we learn from Paul that we cannot preach the gospel of Jesus without the doctrine of God or the cross without the creation or salvation without judgment. Why are we doing a study on Wednesday nights called the holiness of God? Because it is the holiness of God that allows us to sing with all of our hearts, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And you'll never sing it the way I just sang it or said it if you don't understand the holiness of God. And so it is in our witness. Paul demonstrated that God is bigger than they had imagined. And then he forced the question, who do you say that Jesus, the risen one, is? Who do you say he is, Athens? We should be telling our world, who do you say is America? Gilmer County, Ella J. You see, we can and we must effectively share Jesus at every level of society. We need to tell atheists, I admire your passion for the truth. I can see that you want to be a moral person who's intellectually honest. So, Mr. Atheist, let's think about this together. How are your conclusions working for you? We need to say to non-religious fathers and mothers that we know and hang out with at the sports fields, moms and dads, you, are you checking? Are you are you hearing me? We need to say to them, it's obvious you really you really care about your kid's future. I know you want your life to matter, so let's talk. Are the are the ideas, the pursuits, the beliefs that you're encouraging your kids to stake their future on? Are they really a solid foundation that's going to hold up their lives when they grow up? We need to say to liberal activists, I'm touched by your compassion, how compassionate you are, and how you want to see the brokenness of our world healed, but will giving food and education to everyone in the world ultimately fix it? Hear me say this, we should be giving food and education to all that we can, amen, as the church of Jesus Christ. There's a social element to the gospel, but it's not enough. I, I mean... Well, giving food and education to everyone in the world, fix it. I mean, we're the richest, most educated society in the world, and yet we're still killing each other every day. From kids in our schools just a week or so ago, another shooting to police officers, three in the last couple days, to innocent folks who were assumed to be a threat because of their ethnicity. Sir, ma'am, how do you explain that? Just doing good's the answer to the to the world's problems, and then why haven't you fixed it yet? We can say to science, I love studying science, and I do. 
and learning about how the universe is put together so intricately with such a clear design and how everything interacts in balance. Do you really believe, though, sir, that it all just happened without a designer and a creator? Are we supposed to just accept the mixed-up math that nothing times nobody equals everything? You see, our God is the one true and living God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proved it. So interact with people. Proclaim him. See what Paul saw. Feel what he felt. Do what he did and say what he said. And as you're doing it, though, don't feel like you have to answer every question or objection. Evelyn Underhill said this, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. Amen. But just know, as you have these conversations, you should expect varying responses. Paul received several different ones. Lastly, this morning, notice how Paul was received in verses 32 to 34. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, I just want to make sure you understand that if, if, if that person in your life hasn't heard of the resurrection of the dead, the, the message that Jesus died and rose again, he's not yet heard the gospel. There's nothing for them to respond to. You haven't finished your job. Are you with me? So however they respond before that is irrelevant. you got to get through the gospel then you can expect basically three responses to the resurrection of Jesus. One, mockery. text says some mocked. When they'd heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But some were curious. Curiosity is another response. Others said, we will hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst. Then verse 34 makes it clear that some, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some, verse 34 says, joined him and believed. They, They responded in faith. They heard the gospel and they embraced Jesus as their savior. Among whom, by the way, were Dionysius the Areopagite, one of the council of the 30. And a woman named Damaris and and others with him. We don't know who Damaris was, but it's a pretty common name in that day. There's no description given. We could just assume she was just a run-of-the-mill lady in the marketplace. You see, at every level of society, Paul shared the gospel and they believe we can and must effectively share Jesus at every level of our society. John Stott challenges us with this question as we close. Why is it that the church slumbers peacefully on and that so many Christians are deaf and dumb, deaf to Christ's commission and tongue-tied in testimony? Because you see, if you've seen Jesus, if you know Jesus and you see what Paul saw in your world, a world full of idols, then you must feel what he felt. And if you see what he saw and feel what he felt, you'll be moved to do what he did and you will say what he said. You'll speak the truth of Jesus, the only answer for this world's problem. We can and we must effectively share Jesus at every level of our society. Let's pray together.